Well, good evening. Some of the most iconic movies of all time depict courtroom scenes. In fact, some of the best-selling fiction authors write about lawyers and courtroom scenes. If you think about the movies, you, think, you might think about A Few Good Men. You might think about an older movie called Twelve Angry Men or A Time to Kill. Like To Kill a Mockingbird is a classic as well. We're fascinated by what takes place in courtroom scenes because of the tension and the drama. What's going to be revealed? Is there going to be new evidence? What's going to be the final verdict? People's lives are hanging in the balance. But more than just an interesting drama, I think that we're fascinated by courtroom scenes because we all know intuitively that we will stand trial one day before the Lord. I think it's built into us. I think it's wired into us. Everyone will stand before the judge. We will have to give an account for our lives. Everyone will hear a verdict that affects them forever, whether people acknowledge it or not. I think they know. So far as we've made our way through Acts, the apostles have twice been called before the Jewish council or what was called the Sanhedrin. First they were warned and released. Then the next time they were rebuked and severely beaten and eventually released. Now our passage tonight depicts another courtroom scene, only this time it's not the apostles, but a lone disciple standing before the council, and the outcome is far worse than before. Turn with me to Acts chapter 6. We're beginning at verse 8, and you may have been surprised to see what a large passage of Scripture we're covering this evening. Believe me, it makes sense. It all has to do with Stephen. Now, I hope you had a chance to read it, or that you will after our gathering. You may have noticed that um, um, you may have noticed that we didn't read it all, um, and you will need to follow along with my summaries of some of what Stephen said. So. Michael was only reading to you from the beginning and the end. We'll fill in the blanks as we go. Now, the sermon in a sentence for this entire stretch of Scripture is this. God's messenger and plans are violently opposed, but the gospel can't be stopped. God's messenger and plans are violently opposed but the gospel can't be stopped. If you're taking notes, it might help for you to jot down the outline for my sermon this evening. It's just four points, a trial, a speech, a murder, and a scattering. A trial, a speech, a murder, and a scattering. 
In the first seven verses of Acts 6, a conflict arises in the rapidly expanding church that's there in Jerusalem. Unity is threatened, and the gospel ministry of the apostles is in danger of being set aside when they are forced to deal with a lack of fair treatment for Greek-speaking Jewish widows. The daily distribution of food and supplies was not getting to those Greek speaking widows, and so they brought a complaint, and it went all the way to the apostles. Now, God provided the wisdom that the apostles needed, and the whole church then participated in choosing seven men to oversee that distribution of food and provisions to the widows in the church. And those men were most likely of Greek-speaking background themselves, a wise and shrewd decision on the part of the church. And two of those seven that are highlighted in the list, the first two that are listed are named Stephen and Philip. We're going to hear about Philip next week, but this week we hear about Stephen. Stephen is the lead character in our passage right up until the very end when another surprising person is introduced, someone who will play a huge role in the gospel going out to the whole world. Now, Stephen was chosen by his fellow church members to fulfill a role like a deacon would because he was full of the Spirit and of wisdom. That Spirit-given wisdom is on full display in our passage as Stephen is confronted by his opponents and dragged before the council in a hastily arranged trial. And that's the first point, a trial. And we see that in verses 8 through the very first verse of chapter 7, 6, 8 through 7, 1. And so in verse 8, the first verse in our passage, we see that God is giving Stephen not just a full measure of the Spirit and wisdom, but power, power to do miracles like the apostles. Look with me at verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. God is blessing certain people with the same Spirit-enabled abilities that only the apostles have had up until this point. And it's not only miracles. In the course of his ministry, Stephen aroused the anger of a certain group of Jews who belonged to a synagogue, a certain synagogue there in Jerusalem called the Synagogue of the Freedmen. And Luke lists the areas where these Jews were from in the world. They were largely from North Africa, south of the Mediterranean, and they were from north of the Mediterranean in what is today Turkey. And when those Jews argue with Stephen, they cannot withstand the wisdom and the spirit that he speaks with. They just can't best him. He has too much wisdom. And Stephen is doing miracles, and he's carrying on a ministry of the Word just like the apostles were doing. Everyone who repents and trusts in Christ as their Lord and Savior receives the Holy Spirit. The moment that they trust in Christ, they receive the Spirit. The Spirit then equips us with gifts and a character 
that's being transformed more and more and more as we go along in life to be like Christ. I know sometimes you may feel like it's two steps forward and one step back, or maybe some days, some weeks, you feel like one step forward, two steps back. But believe me, if you've trusted in Christ, you have the Spirit. And so, even though the Spirit is unseen and dwells in us, the Spirit produces gifts and character change in us that can be seen. There are marks. There's evidences. So, when Christians talk about the fruit in a person's life, they're using a word that the Bible uses for, to describe the effects, the effects of something unseen that then begin to show. They're talking about the outward signs of the inward presence of the Holy Spirit. One famous Christian theologian, J.C. Ryle, said, just as you know the compass needle is magnetized when it turns to the north, and just as you know that there is life in the tree by its sap and buds, leaves, and fruits, just as you know there's a pilot on board a ship when it keeps a steady course, so you know that the Spirit is in a man's heart by the way that he exercises his thoughts, affections, habits, and life. Is there evidence of the Spirit in you? Sure, you may be aware of your faults. I hope you're aware of some of the temptations you might be faced with recently. You know about your failings. But can you look back and see how God has changed you over time? Do the people around you notice changes in you in a more godly direction? One of the questions that we ask when someone comes to be a member in our church is we ask them, how did you become a Christian and how has God been at work in your life since then? So we're we're looking for the person to be able to identify even maybe just the smallest evidences and marks of the Holy Spirit's work in their life. If so, if you see those changes, even just incrementally, praise God for His kindness to you. And ask for more. Pursue a deeper and more thorough feeling of His Spirit. God loves to give us what we ask for when we ask for more of Him. He loves that. If you look for evidence of the Spirit and you don't see any, talk to a wise Christian friend. Or come speak with one of the elders of the church. Come talk to us. Perhaps you don't see what others might see in you. But the Spirit always leaves marks and evidence of His presence in a person. If the Spirit isn't there, that person is not a true Christian. Romans chapter 8 verse 9 says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. All Christians have the Spirit, but Stephen seemed to be given an extra measure of the Spirit. When he was opposed by the Jews, they couldn't defeat him. He was too wise. He had too much understanding for them. And so, they stirred up the people against him, and then they seized him and falsely accused him before the council. Their accusations were mainly along two different lines. First, 
He speaks blasphemous words against Moses and God. And then they also said that he speaks against the temple and God's law. Now, the false charges leveled against him rang out in the room, and then the high priest asks in 7 verse 1, are these things so? And then we begin to hear from Stephen. Jesus said to His disciples, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for My name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. This promise was for Stephen. And this promise is for us as well. When we're confronted and challenged, even if it's not in a courtroom, maybe it's in your workplace, or maybe it's in front of family members who are hostile to your faith. Maybe it's your classmates when they find out you're a Christian. Wherever you are, And whoever is attacking you for being a Christian, the Spirit will give you wisdom for what to say. Trust in this promise, brothers and sisters. And that's exactly what the Spirit did for Stephen. Verses 2 in chapter 7 through 53 are Stephen's speech. It's long. And that's the second point this evening, a speech. First it was a trial, now we get a speech. It's verses 1 through 53. Stephen's speech is the longest speech that's recorded in the book of Acts. It's kind of ironic given that he's not an apostle. And in this speech, it's a recounting of much of Israel's history in the Old Testament. First, he reminds them of God's promises to Abraham in verses 2 through 8. He gives them an overview of Genesis chapters 12 through 36. And they focus on how God spoke to Abraham first when he lived in Mesopotamia, which is current-day Iraq, not the land of Israel. Stephen mentions the promise of the land. He mentions the prophecy that Abraham's descendants would be slaves for 400 years and then be rescued. He talks about the covenant sign of circumcision and the twelve sons of Jacob, which he calls patriarchs. Stephen is establishing a common history with his accusers, and he's reminding them of God's promises and provision for them as a people. Then in verses 9 through 16, Stephen goes on to recount how God kept His promise to preserve Israel through the persecuted brother of the patriarchs named Joseph. So Abraham's first, and now he's speaking about Joseph in verses 9 through 16. He reminds them of how God gave Joseph favor and wisdom even though his brothers were jealous of him, and he eventually became their savior through his forgiveness. He had a position of authority in Egypt. You'll remember that if you've read at the end of Genesis. And he provides shelter for all of Jacob's family during the famine that was taking place up in Canaan. 
Then Stephen moves on, and in verses 17 through 43, his speech focuses on Moses. So Abraham, Joseph, now Moses. He focuses on Moses' role as a Savior and a Redeemer whom God raised up, but whom the Israelites consistently rejected. And in verse 22, he reminds them that Moses was given wisdom and was mighty in his words and deeds. I hope you're beginning to hear some repetition, some repeated ideas, perhaps even words, even as I just give you summary. But the people constantly refused to obey Moses, and they refused to obey the law that Moses brought to them from God as well. Instead of worshiping God like He had commanded, they made idols, and they worshiped those idols. Stephen says to them that they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. This is the Israelites. Then he moves on in verses 44 through 50, and Stephen briefly recounts that it was God who had given them the tabernacle as a center of worship. You'll remember that Stephen's accusers have leveled a charge against him that he's speaking against the temple. So, Stephen's addressing the temple. Stephen reminds them that David founded Jerusalem, the place where eventually King Solomon, David's son, would build the temple, but that the Israelites even made the temple into an idol, forgetting that God doesn't dwell in a house, houses made by hands. The whole earth is the Lord's. I wonder, even just in this simple recounting and the summary of so many verses, if you've picked up some of the themes in Stephen's defense. God's promises are true and sure. His messengers have been consistently rejected by Israel, and the Israelites rejected His law, and they misunderstood the temple. And then in verses 51 through 53, we see Stephen's closing argument. And rather than act as a defense lawyer for himself, he shifts into being a prosecuting attorney. Read with me verses 51 through 53, or follow along with me as I read. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen's message to the council and his accusers is, listen, I'm not the one blaspheming Moses and God. I'm not the one violating the law and the temple. You are. You are. You've always opposed and persecuted God's prophets. You've always resisted the Holy Spirit. You've always disobeyed the law and idolized the temple. And worst of all, 
You've betrayed and murdered the righteous one sent to you, Jesus of Nazareth, the Savior who fulfills all of the promises of God. Stephen is a saying, Stephen is saying that, he's saying, you Jews, we Jews have a heritage of pride and rebellion against God, and you leaders are continuing in the same idolatrous behavior that the Old Testament recounts over and over and over again. Now, Stephen has touched on history that's in all five of the first books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, and then he's touched on history that's in Joshua and in First and Second Samuel, and in First Kings, and even in the prophetic books of Isaiah and Amos. One lesson for us is that we need to know God's Word in the Old Testament, just like Stephen did. Commit yourself to get familiar with the Old Testament. Make sure that your Bible reading consistently takes you into those first 39 books of the Bible. Knowing the Old Testament is the key to actually understanding the New Testament. One author has written a volume about the Old Testament, and he calls it Promises Made. And then he wrote a volume about the New Testament, and he called it Promises Kept. That's how they're related. The Old Testament lays down all the patterns which are resolved in Jesus Christ, And the old includes all the promises that are fulfilled in Him. And so our goal should be to not only know the history and the texts of the Old Testament, yes, that's important, but to also know how all of it points to Jesus Christ as the Savior and the Redeemer that God has sent to His rebellious people. That's one of the reasons why we have a clearly stated statement of faith for our church. A summary of what we believe is at the core message of the Bible. It's at the core message of the Old Testament. And so, when you read the Old Testament, it might be helpful for you to look at our church's statement of faith and ask the question, what is this portion of the Old Testament pointing to in our statement of faith? If our statement of faith indeed summarizes the message of the Old Testament along with the New. That might be helpful for you as you read the Old Testament. But don't give up reading the Old Testament, even though it can seem culturally speaking far away from you and difficult to understand. Keep at it. God will embed it in your heart as you take it in. One big mistake that the Jews were making is that they were depending on their religious heritage to grant them favor with the Lord. Yet it was their religious heritage that should have been the warning sign that they had hard hearts bent toward rejecting God's Savior and His kindness. We should take that warning ourselves. If you have some history of Christianity in your family, that can be a wonderful benefit. Perhaps you were taught the Scriptures as a child. Perhaps you were brought to church throughout your early life. Yet, beware of counting on that heritage as if 
favor with God is somehow accredited to you, somehow you've inherited in your DNA, or from living in a house with people who call themselves Christians, a right standing before God. It doesn't work like that. If anything, we need to be honest about the patterns of our sinfulness that we're prone to through our families and our history. The inheritance that has the most consequence for us is what we've received from our father, Adam. Sin. A sin nature. Oh, we have to beware of that. And there's no solution for sin except the saving blood of Jesus Christ applied to each person when they individually repent and trust in Christ. Stephen had turned his defense into an indictment of the Israelites, and in keeping with their history, they turned on him. Verses 54 through 60 in chapter 7 describe a murder a murder. The Jews are enraged at Stephen. He's presented them with the truth about themselves and the nation as a whole, but they continue to resist the Holy Spirit speaking through him. Again, Luke tells us that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. He gazes into heaven. He sees the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he announces to the angry crowd what he's seeing in the vision which only makes them more angry. They're enraged. They cover their ears, which is ironic given that Stephen had accused them of uncircumcised ears, and they rush at him. They cast him out of the city, and they stone him to death. Luke tells us that Stephen called out to Jesus as he was dying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he finally dies, crying out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Stephen, in many ways, was like Joseph in his recounting of the Israelites' history. His Israelite brothers were jealous of him. Stephen was like Moses. He had wisdom. He did great wonders and signs, and he came with news of redemption through Jesus Christ. But most of all, Stephen was like Christ, especially in his death. He was unjustly murdered like Christ. He spoke to the Lord as he died like Christ. He cried out with a a loud shout when he died like Christ, and he prayed for the forgiveness of his murderers just like Christ. To be like Christ is to forgive our enemies like Stephen forgave, just like Jesus. John Calvin said, Assuredly, there is but one way in which to achieve what is not merely difficult, but utterly against human nature, to love those who hate us, to repay their evil deeds with benefits, to return blessings for reproaches. It is that we remember not to consider men's evil intention, but to look upon the image of God in them, which cancels and covers over their transgressions 
and with its beauty and dignity allures us to love and embrace them. This is only possible by the working of the Holy Spirit in you and I. It's only possible by knowing and trusting in the Christ who has forgiven us who were once His enemies. Are there people that you need to forgive? People who've consistently shown you unkindness, perhaps even some who have persecuted you. Ask the Lord to enable you to forgive. Pray for them to come to know Christ if they don't, or to repent and live like Christ if they do. And there's a promise here in this group of verses for us as well. If you've repented and trusted in Christ for sin, if you believe in Him, if you're living for Him, if He's your King, He will receive you into glory just as He did Stephen. That's a promise. The good news of the gospel offers that promise to us that we who were once enemies we who had fallen short of the mark, we who had rebelled against God, we who had no way of atoning for our own sins, making up for it, making our way back to God, we had no interest in doing that. And yet God, because of His great love and mercy, sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to come to the earth, to live a perfect life and go to the cross for us who would trust in Him. His blood washes away all the sins of anyone who trusts in Him. Anyone who repents and believes in Him will be received by Him. This is a promise. You can count on it. You know, the last verse of this great hymn that we sang, Whate'er my God ordains is right. Whate'er my God ordains is right, here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My Father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall, and so to Him I leave it all. Stephen could have penned these words, and we can know they're true for us as well. You know, the last line there in those verses that end with Stephen's death are for us as well. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. There's a promise there for us. Whenever a Christian dies, it's like falling asleep. You know those nights when you can't fall asleep, when you're desperate for rest, and then finally, by God's kindness and mercy, you drift off and you get rest? That's what death is for Christians. It's the beginning of rest. And we will awake, we will awake to the welcome of the sun. 
Our last three verses are the beginning of chapter 8. And first we see that Saul is mentioned there again for a second time. He was there approving of Stephen's murder. But the Jews didn't stop with Stephen. They began began to persecute the whole church in Jerusalem. Look with me at verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. The fact that the apostles weren't scattered might mean that the persecution was mainly directed toward the Greek-speaking Hellenistic Jews, or it could be simply that the apostles hid out and worked hard to stay there in Jerusalem so that they could shepherd the church through what would have been a significantly diminished and difficult time. The persecution is described in detail by mentioning Saul a third time then in verse 3. He was ravaging the church, it says, dragging people out of their homes and committing them to prison. Who could imagine that this Saul that hunted Christians from house to house would one day be the Paul who taught and ministered the gospel of Jesus Christ from house to house in cities and towns all across Cilicia and Asia, the very places that Stephen's persecutors came from. That's right. Just two chapters ahead of this chapter, we'll hear of how Saul came to faith in Christ. The gospel changes people. Even the people that you least expect to be changed. Augustine famously said, the church owes Paul to the prayer of Stephen. The church owes Paul to the, chair, to the prayer of Stephen. In other words, we wouldn't have Paul if Stephen hadn't prayed, Father, forgive them their sins. Now, I don't know that that forced God's hand, but I do know that God answers our prayers when He asks when we ask for Him to save people, the very thing that's in His plan. Stephen prayed for those who murdered him, and from that group came the greatest missionary, evangelist, and theologian that we have in the Scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ can even save murderers. Can you imagine that? If you're not a Christian, I'm so glad that you're here. You just got to hear a speech that recounts really the whole Old Testament in about 20 minutes. (laughs) Why haven't you trusted in Christ? Why haven't you? Do you think that there's some sin, something that you've done that God can't possibly forgive? Could that be it? Think again. The Lord Jesus laid down His life for any sin that you've committed. If He forgave the sin of Saul, He can forgive your sin too. There's no sin that He can't wash away. Nothing. Nothing. Won't you turn to Him? Won't you put your trust in Him? Persecution of the church is a tragedy. Even now, 
we read about persecution of the church going on all around the world. The church in Iran is under persecution and pressure. Christians are being literally drug out of their homes and thrown into prison for years at a time. The church in China as well, and in so many other places around the world. But remember Christ's promise back in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. You see, the scattering of the church would ultimately result in the gathering of new people, one to Christ, through the preaching of the gospel. The dispersion of the Jewish Christians would ultimately create a band of missionaries, not refugees. It's right for us to lament persecution and trouble when it causes so much pain and heartache, even death to our brothers and sisters in the church and different places around the world, even places very, very close to here. But it's also right to trust in our sovereign God to accomplish His purposes through what our enemies intend for harm. He did that at the cross, didn't He? He took what they meant for harm, and He turned it into good, the ultimate good for us. Grace and mercy that flows out and has not stopped flowing out and will not stop flowing out to those of us who believe. We haven't experienced persecution per se maybe some of us more than others, but we've had people in our church who've had to leave and return to their home country. Even in those losses, we pray that what they've learned at Covenant Hope Church, they'll take with them and contribute to the spread of the gospel in places that many of us will never be able to even visit, perhaps. God uses our losses for gain. We trust Him for that. God uses tragedy to advance His kingdom. That's embedded in the gospel. Oh, brothers and sisters, I hope as you survey this long stretch of verses, as you think about Stephen and his bold witness being filled with grace and power, as you think about the history that he's recounted for his accusers, as you think about the way he died, just like Christ died, I hope you're encouraged to be a witness like Stephen, to be faithful like Stephen, ultimately to walk in the steps of Stephen's Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise You and thank You for Your loving kindness. It is better than life itself to us. And Lord, we trust You. We trust You that even when hardship and trials, when loss and even persecution come, that You will use it in our lives as we walk in faithfulness to bring about gospel advance more people pouring into your kingdom. 
Oh, Lord, we praise you for the good news of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.